Last night, we, uh, we touched base on the transfiguration, right? Uh, so just by way of recap, just a couple of things, right? God works, if we look at Scripture, if we look, at, if we look throughout the Bible, God works on mountaintops. All through the Old Testament, God is working in mountaintops. Um, Jesus can, whenever Jesus comes to the world and is like revealing God's love to us and revealing us who, who God is, he's also, when you hear about a mountain, there's something big that's about to happen, right? Moses and Elijah are present. We dove into what the questions, the aches of their heart were as they were on the mountaintops themselves. I want to see you. I want to desire to see you. And Lord, I want to know that you're real. I want to hear your voice. And what happens on the mountaintop in the transfiguration is that those two desires, those, like those two things that they, they asked, those questions that they asked were fulfilled because they got to see Jesus face to face. The apostles, the inner circle, right, get to see Jesus face to face. So much so that even though they're tired, which scripture says they are tired, so much so that they don't want to go to sleep, but they just want to stay. They want to live there. <laughs> The mountaintop is that amazing and that beautiful and that awesome. Well, Jesus doesn't let them live there. They got to go back down. They got to continue their life. They got to continue to follow him and stay close to him. And it's not about living on top of a mountaintop. As we all know, the wedding is just the beginning, but you got to come off that mountain at some point and live in the marriage. Today, uh, and I also think uh, one of the other things that we did last night was after we, we heard about this image of Jesus revealing himself, God revealing his glory through his son, we were able to sit here, even in a glory cloud, incense, right? Um, not just trying to make you cough. Uh, we were able to sit here and basically be like the apostles. We were able to be in front of Jesus, revealed and shining forth into our life. We were able to experience that light that God has promised us that he flooded that mountain with so many years ago. And we were able to experience a little bit of it in our own lives last night. I, I don't know about y'all, but I, I, the prayer experience last night was, I, the time of prayer was just beautiful. Um, and my perspective was awesome because I was able to see out and just watching the openness of the church praying before our Lord. It was a beautiful, beautiful night. Tonight, it's going to be a little bit less comfortable because it's not about light, because light is usually easy. Light is usually beautiful. Light is usually the thing that's like what we brag about. But tonight's about darkness. And we're, we're kind of like kids when it comes to our relationship with God, that we love light, but we're afraid of the dark. So tonight, we're going to find ourselves in a little bit different posture, hopefully, as we dive in, as we continue to look at another mountaintop where Jesus found himself. This time, not one where Moses and Elijah are flanking him and he's revealed in all his glory and all these things. But rather one where he questioned everything. Where even his existence and his mission and everything else just became hard. So tonight we're going to talk about the agony in the garden. 
which, not, which might seem like an, un, an unproductive place to sit or a, a kind of uneasy place to sit, but it's okay. Because I think for all of us, if we reflect well there, we'll understand what was coming about in the agony of the garden, what Jesus was pointing us towards, and ultimately what we can come to experience even in the darkness, where God likes to speak to us even in the dark, the uncomfortable, the struggles of life. Let's begin tonight first with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and we just ask that you speak to us, speak to our hearts. May we have a spirit of openness. May we have a spirit of attentiveness. May we have a spirit where we're able to discern and listen to your words, not with just our ears, but with our hearts open to you. May your word, Lord, tonight speak to us, call us to conversion, where we don't only encounter your face or your eyes, but we come to encounter the deep love and mercy that you have for each one of us. We ask all of this as we pray to our Blessed Mother, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So when I was a, uh, I, as I start most of my homilies, when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, we went, I was able, like, growing up, I had a bunch of cousins on my mom's side of the family. Uh, and what we would do, we never got babysitters, so I know some grandparents here are probably like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about, right? I remember going, and we would go to my grandmother's house all the time during the summer. And we would kind of like sync it up. We'd make sure that all the cousins were going to be there. And we would make this big old party basically out of it and make her feed all of us. Um, but it was always a blast growing up and having just a bunch of people about my age and just being raised with some of my best friends being my cousins. And I remember one of the things that we used to do, we'd ride our bikes around Clotilda. We would, you know, we, we would always try and find a way to con my grandmother out of some money. I know this is really bad, but like what we would do is like we would open like a lemonade stand. Nobody's passing down this street at all. But we would open the lemonade stand. We would set up everything. We'd make it like really pretty and everything. And she would come buy it all. (laughs) So it's like she made, we used her stuff and her table and her everything to make the lemonade. And then she came buy it from us for five bucks. I'm like, this is pretty awesome. Like little entrepreneur, right? (laughs) Watch out. I give Catholic before it was a thing, you know? Anyway, um, but like we would do all kind of stuff. We had a club that we started with the cousins. We had all kind of different things. Well, one of the best parts about growing up around there was that we had a swimming pool. And there weren't many places that had a swimming pool, but we had an in-the-ground, deep-in, shallow-in kind of swimming pool at Clotilda. Now it's just a flat piece of land because it's filled in. But then it was awesome. We used to go and play all kind of stuff, chicken fights and all these different things, and someone was going to cry, and it was okay, right? Well, I remember, like, when one of the games, we, we, we had a couple of games we would play, and one of them was Marco Polo. Now... Marco Polo is a fun game. Marco Polo is a good time, uh, as long as you're not it, right? 
If you're it, you got your eyes closed, and if you open them, it doesn't count. So the way we played, the rules we played with, I don't know if everybody did this, but it was Marco. 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 Fish out of water, right? And if you didn't at least have a, a, a toe still in the water, <laughs> you were now it. Well, when we would grab somebody, like if we like grab somebody, we had to then like feel their face. And if we knew who they were, we had to call it out. If we missed, then you were still it. That was our way. Now, I don't know. Some people might have like you just touch somebody and they it. But no, no, no. We, we up the ante, right? Well, I remember there was this, I was kind of, I mean, I was, a, I was okay, but like I was a little bit spoiled as a kid. So I remember if I was it more than like three or four times, I would freak out. Like if I was it like three or four times in a row, I'd scream fish out of water and no one's out of the water. I'm like, mm, you know, and then a little while later, I grabbed somebody, Betsy, open her eyes, wrong, dang, all right, all right, next person. And like three or four times after that, I was frustrated and I quit. It was pretty much every time it was just like, ah, I quit this, this is you're cheating or something. And it's, it wasn't. I was just frustrated because I was the one that had to keep my eyes closed while everybody else is having fun. See, this game is fun as long as you're not in the dark. If you're in the dark, the game's really not that good. <laughs> it's kind of fun just to laugh at the person and be like really close to them and doing this, like waving in front of their face and all, and nothing, and, and they can't see you, they don't know where you are. But being in the dark was the most frustrating thing in the world. And after three or four times, it was pretty much hopeless. Like, I was willing to give up the fun and the game because, you know what, I'm in the dark and I can't change it. And I'm not going to be able to change it. It was a hopeless situation, so I give up. Now, I think that hopeless situation, that idea of being in the dark is a hopeless situation, is something that isn't just for a kid game. I think that's something that we can reflect on tonight as we go up on the mountain with the Lord in the agony in the garden. Because we hear about a hopeless situation when we dive into this scripture, when we dive into this space. Let's break it open. Your first quote on your, on your sheet should be from Mark's gospel. And they went to a place which was called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping 
and taking your rest. Is it enough? The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Just imagine being in that garden. If you've watched The Passion, you probably see it's a pretty good rendition, like a good expression of the scene where Jesus is with his disciples. He's with his 12. He just had the Last Supper. And he knows something's coming up. He knows his time is at the end. He knows his hour is there. And he goes out to pray. It's a pretty bleak situation, though, that we find him in. And I think he's, he's, we say, we hear that he's betrayed, but I think he's being betrayed, in a way, betrayed, right? Air quotes, three different ways. Like, I think the human person of Jesus is feeling betrayed in multiple ways here. The first one, my betrayer is at hand. We all know Judas. He's the traitor. He's known from the time he's called in the Scriptures, he's the one that becomes a traitor. We know where he's going. But Judas was one of the twelve. I think what happens a lot of times is we think of Judas as the evil one. So much so that even the the apostles up on the rafters, the one person who doesn't have a halo is Judas. Like we recognize Judas as the evil one, as the tainted one, as the fallen one, as the one that's away and that's apart from the crowd, apart from the group. But Jesus chose him. He was part of the twelve. When they were gone for three years and being formed by the Lord and staying close to Him all this time, Judas was right there with the rest of them. Like in between John and James and Peter, Judas is right there. He's following them everywhere he goes. He's eating with them. He's visiting with them for three years of his ministry. Judas isn't this like Red-headed stepchild kind of kid that's off on the side that just happens to come along and betray Jesus. Judas is one of his closest friends. Jesus is being taken, he's being betrayed by one of his closest friends. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. There's a betrayal. There's a hurt. There's a sin. There's a division in a relationship that's something that has fed me for a really long time and all of a sudden, being betrayed in a major way. He's actively giving me up to be killed. It's a sin of commission. (laughs) A second way that Jesus, I think in this situation, is feeling the weight of betrayal. It's the same three figures going up with him. Peter, James, and John. Handful of script, a handful of verses earlier, they're on, the, they're on Mount Tabor. The transfiguration's happening before them. They see this epic kind of moment where Jesus is, daz- is, is, is clothed in light and shining forth on them. And they want to live there and stay there and not move from there. 
And when they come down the mountain, they forget. We read in the Transfiguration account that they are tired, but they're locked in. Here, they can't stay awake. Basically saying, like, like it's gonna, you're going to stay with me and you're going to focus with me and you're going to pray with me when it's easy. But when it gets hard and heavy and dark, are you going to let go? Are you going to give in to being tired? I don't know about you, but for me, like when life is going easy, it's easy to be Catholic. Like when life is going well, when it's time for celebrations and things like that, it's awesome to be Catholic. But when there's a crisis, it's not so easy anymore. When there's a crisis and I feel betrayed, I'm, I'm done. I'm backing off. I don't need the prayer. I don't need the sacraments that you offer. When there's hurt, when there's something like sickness or, or, or struggle or, or loss, divorce, addiction that enters into our life. Oh, no, 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 no. I didn't sign up for this. I think a third place that we can reflect on with Jesus, that we can sit with Jesus in this garden and reflect Jesus says a very, very, I think, honest prayer. Kind of like Moses with the very honest prayer to God. I think Jesus in his human spirit looks at him and says, like, take this cup. I don't want to do this. And he gets no answer. How many times in your life, just asking for reflection's sake, do you cry out to God, God, fix this. And it feels like it falls on deaf ears. God, heal me. Nothing. God, my life's a mess. I need help. Crickets. Jesus is dealing with a lot of weight of m- multiple levels of betrayal, multiple, like multiple emotions of betrayal in his own heart. And I think, honestly, if we're really honest with ourselves, that we can relate probably more to Jesus at this point in the gospel than we can whenever he's on, the, when he's on that mountain of light and light and ease. Because quite honestly, life is not light and light and ease. What it is, a lot of times it's hard. It's dirty. <laughs> And it's dark. Just for a moment, like reflect, how is it that I react to the Lord when it's that space, when it's dark, when it's heavy, when things like addiction, divorce, loss, suffering, sickness enter my life? Like do we sit and remove ourselves from the Lord Do we start to accuse him of abandoning us? Or do we run to him and say, Lord, you know what suffering is. You know what it means to be betrayed by a lot. 
to be abandoned by a lot. You see, I think the same way that the battle against suffering and sickness and divorce and addiction and all these things, the same way that that can be a very bleak fight, a very hopeless fight, I think a lot of times in our own life, our battle with sin can seem like that same hopeless fight. Like I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of giving into this sin over and over. I'm tired of continuing to say that thing about that person every time I see them. I'm tired of still feeling the hurt that somebody said or did to me a long time ago. I'm, I'm tired of looking for God's, God's blessing and love in a place that cannot fill it. Where I go to this empty well and try and find water and there's nothing there. And I go to this one again and there's nothing there. Until finally, I'm dying of thirst and I don't know where to find true water, true nourishment. In fact, sometimes it can be so hopeless that we even question why it is that we're doing these things that we do. If, we look at our, if you look at your sheet, St. Paul to the Romans. Now St. Paul has his baggage, right? We'll, we'll dive into that in a second. St. Paul to the Romans, right? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree that the law is good. So then it is no longer that I do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. You see, there's this image that Paul draws. There's this, this kind of dichotomy that Paul draws where he says, the spirit is good. The spirit is willing. But man, the flesh is weak. It's faulted, it's broken, it's hurt. But when we look at St. Paul, St. Paul has a lot of baggage, like I said. St. Paul has a lot of history. But if there's ever a person that can show what God's mercy can do, we can look no further than Paul. If those spaces of betrayal, if those spaces of hurt, if those spaces in our life aren't the, aren't the cleanest, it's probably cleaner than Paul's. If we look at Paul's history, Saul, as the, as the Roman warrior that he was, was a persecutor of Christians. He would literally drag them out and kill them in the street. Saul was, a, was someone who was supposed to try and basically stomp out the fire of this movement that was going on known as Christians. The way, as it's known in the, early, as in the first century. But Paul is, 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 is tasked as a Roman soldier, to go out and to get rid of this, this cult, because they were dangerous. He's the one that orders that Stephen, that he's at the moment whenever Stephen becomes the first martyr. And because of God's mercy, he goes from that, from that kind of history, from literally betraying Christ over and over and over again, 
He goes from there to being an evangelist to the Gentiles, to being a prophet to the world, literally writing half of the New Testament. And it's all because he had this sobering moment where the Lord acted very, very profoundly in his life and said, Saul, Saul, stop persecuting me. See, Paul wasn't just, Saul wasn't just persecuting these Christians, these people that were out there doing things. In his, in his sin, in his, in his fight, he was hurting Jesus himself. And God entered in in a miraculous way and revealed his mercy to him. We can look at the next spot. In 1 Timothy, he writes to Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, I thank him who has given me strength for this, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful by appointing me to his service. Though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and insulted him, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the foremost of sinners. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of, of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Like Paul sees it as his destiny, as who he's called to be because he was the greatest of sinners that God's mercy was powerful enough to make him an exemplar, an example of what mercy can do in someone's life. So if, if you're sitting here and you're struggling with this idea of being in the garden and it being these betrayal and like, man, I got a lot of this stuff on me. Like, I'm not perfect in these ways. I know that I've, I've gone against Jesus. I know that I've sinned against him. I know that I've betrayed him. I know that I've turned him in or, or left him behind or fallen asleep when he's needed me. Man, I'm not perfect in these ways. It's okay. Paul wasn't either. He just let the mercy of God work in his life in a powerful, powerful way. See, the good part is, is that the agony in the garden isn't the end of the, end of, end of the story. The good part is, is that we have light and light and ease and all those things with the transfiguration, and even though we have the darkness of the agony in the garden, that those two mountains are not the end of the story. Before I dive into a third mountain, I want to say one little thing, one little story. Um, when, I was at, uh, when I was at LSU, we, uh, we would go to football games, right? And I remember going to my first football game. I showed up before the gates opened like four hours before. Like, it's the student section, it's general admission. I'm like, I'm getting a good seat, right? 
I showed up about three and a half, four hours before with my friends, and we just waited for the gate to open. Now, the gate opens two hours before the game. So I was in line six hours, almost a work day. This is why my grades were so good, right? But, the, like, I, I was in line almost six hours before kickoff. Now, some people are looking at me like, yep, and I'd have been right there with you, right? Some people are looking at me like, you're an idiot. And they ain't no, no, no shying away from them. You're dumb. That, that's a long time. You can do a lot of other things, productive things, with six hours, right? See, my limit for my love of LSU football is about six hours of waiting in line. Right? Some people that limit for that is about 10 minutes. And I know that some people are looking at me crazy. It's the same way that I look at people when they're lined up around a block to get a new iPhone. Right? An iPhone comes out two days before. It looks like Tent City outside. I'm like, that's dumb. Mine works just fine. I don't need to get the new one. Right? I got about 15 minutes walking into the AT&T store, and that's good enough for me. But my limit, my limit of my love for an iPhone ain't much. It's about 10 minutes. And anything longer than that, I'm usually pretty aggravated waiting in the AT&T store. I think we can look at it, there's a limit to the amount of love that we have for things. When it comes to marriage, is there a limit to the love that you love your spouse? Most people say that there's no limit to the love that I love my spouse. There's really no limit to the love that I have for my kids, right? That I would do anything for my kids. I would not let a thing happen bad to them. There's zero limit to how much I love my kid. Let's think of the third mountain. If we've got a first mountain, that's the transfiguration. We've got a second mountain, that is the agony in the garden, right? We've got light, we've got darkness. What is the third mountain that follows? It's that one. And when we look at it, we don't see, when we look at the crucifix, when we look at the sanctuary, when we look at Jesus on the cross, God's even willing to give up his kid for you and for me. If there's ever proof that God's love is not limited, it's right here. People wonder why when in Catholic Church we have the crucifix, we have Jesus on the cross. It's because the crucifix is not supposed to just be a sign of, oh, this is what Jesus did for me, the bloody death of my Savior, or some kind of guilt trip every time you walk in. The crucifix is supposed to show that that's the limit of God's love. None. I started off last night with a poem that I had wrote coming off of, a, off of a big retreat. On your sheet, you should have the second half of that poem. Remember, the first half was talking about transfiguration and agony in the garden. And it reads, these peaks are not our end, as a third mountain shows itself on the horizon. This peak is the greatest of them all. We walk the blood-stained way to the place of the skull. At the top of this hill, a place of seemingly so much loss, but wait, 
It's been transformed to the marriage bed of the cross. This is the place of the bridegroom's eternal self-gift. This is the time when the burden of sin begins to lift. This is the place where the veil of His flesh was torn. This is the time when from His side the church was born. We are restored to the favor of the Father above, invited into the Trinity itself, the eternal exchange of love. This love is revealed as full of passion, willing to suffer, and experienced in the Beloved through the gaze of the lover. This all happens at this place of death and tears through His agony, pain, death, and fears. This place where innocence is only defaced by unlawful conviction, but clothed in so great a love that the cross is merely a contradiction. Like when we reflect on the beautiful self-gift that happens, it looks like Jesus was beat. It looks like God's mission failed. Whenever we can, if we look at it without a Catholic vision, right, it looks like God, it didn't work. But in reality, it's through His gift on the cross that we receive God's mercy. It's through His sacrifice on the cross that we have the opportunity to have our sins forgiven. You know, in the Old Testament, what would happen is, that every family would bring, about, would bring about two goats. And that's the way that sin was forgiven. That one goat was brought in and given as a gift to God. The other one would become the scapegoat. The one that they would lay the burdens on. They would lay the sins of the family on. They would lead them out into the desert and they would die. And as they would die, the sins of the family would be forgiven. Another image, another image from the Old Testament that we hear is that each, lamb, each family would procure a lamb. And in procuring a lamb at the Passover, the lamb was slaughtered and roasted. And they would eat of its flesh. But that lamb would forgive their sins, would forgive their debts. That's why on the altar here you have an image of a lamb. That this sacrificial lamb forgives the sins of the people. And then we get to eat of its flesh. For all of us, every Mass, we come and we say, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb, unblemished, untouched, pure and holy. He's the Lamb of God, sacrificed, broken, and poured out so that no matter what the betrayal is in our life or that we've committed, no matter what sins that we have committed against Him or, that we for, or the things that we forgot to do that we should have done, that everything can be clothed in His mercy. That every one of us has a direct line to Him and His merciful love. And the cross shows us that God has zero limit to that love. In so many ways, this time that we enter into, this time at this back half of Lent, Holy Week itself, 
It can seem kind of burdensome and kind of hard and kind of dark. But in so many ways, Jesus comes into it and brightens it up. He lightens up the darkness that we experience. He defeats it. So much so that the the devil is afraid of him. You see, Jesus loves the church and loves it more than anything. Willing to lay down his life. Hey guys, I'm sorry, but the last 10 minutes of the mission didn't record because the batteries died uh, in my recorder. Really, the main point at the end was just to continue to point us back to the mercy that Paul experiences, the same mercy that's accessible to us in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. So during this Lenten season, I hope that uh, the Lord's been with you, the Lord is continuing to bless you. But a beautiful way for us to experience that blessing and that closeness of the Lord is to receive His mercy in a powerful, powerful way in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. So I pray for you as you continue in this season that the Lord may just continue to pour His grace upon you, pour His mercy upon you. And I pray that if you get the opportunity to go to receive that mercy in a powerful way through the sacrament so that the Lord can work a miracle in your life the same way He worked a miracle in St. Paul's life. May God bless you. May God keep you. May God continue to lead you through this Lenten journey so that you can encounter him and experience the joy of Easter with him. Sorry again, but thank you all for understanding. God bless.